Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the next in a series of podcasts with the Journal Star Editorial Board, interviewing candidates for the at-large Peoria City Council election and primary on February 26th. With us today is at-large City Councilwoman Beth Akison. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, Beth. I'm Chris Kergaard, Journal Star Associate Editor. With me is Sally McKee, Journal Star Managing Editor. Thanks for joining us. And running our sound today is Adam Garrick, Journal Star Assistant Managing Editor and also a member of the editorial board. Hi, Adam. (laughs) Hi from afar. All right. Beth, you're completing your second term on the city council right now. Tell us a little bit about yourself and why, after eight years, you still want to have have these exciting meetings. Well, it's they they are very exciting, and I enjoy what I do very much because there's still so much work to be done. I think that um, I'm optimistic. We're making lots of good progress, and if you were to compare where I started eight years ago to how much movement and shift of attitude is on the council. Um, it's very gratifying. So I look forward to another four years. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that nobody would argue with, uh, as you can probably see in, in the frame if you're watching on video, uh, all of the research material and, and books and supporting information that you brought along. I don't think anybody would argue with the fact that you never lack for ideas and research to go with those. In, in the first answer to our questionnaire that you gave, you tackled your thoughts on combating blight, improving city transportation with a complete streets approach that you helped get enacted, work on form-based zoning codes, adding a city business registration, improving how we understand the data collection that the city is doing and, and how that can relate between the departments. That, that's a lot of stuff right there. Uh, it, Recognizing that governing is about setting priorities, it put some of those things together for us in, in terms of how we what we'd want to take as the first step in in dealing with these issues of business development in in underdeveloped areas of the city and and what the city's got to do first so that it can do something second. Okay, so that's a great question. I think the first thing we absolutely have to do is have a business registration. And the reason that we need that is so that we can assess what we have and we can learn from businesses what they need and we can address some of the shortcomings that they may um, collectively talk about with one another or with staff members, but it doesn't really get distributed or communicated to people that might have um, a role to play in improving the situation. So in conversations that um, are necessary to advance programs or put people together, it's like the very first basic step. And I, I'm, I'm pretty confident we're going to get that addressed. It's just the logistics of how do you manage it, because obviously there's um, some time Um, associated with collecting the information. And then once you have it, what do you do with it? And we will have that conversation. And I'm very excited. There are several council people that are making this a priority. And I know that the uh, mayor is making it a priority. So, um, you know, and we'll hear more about it in the months to come before the election. And and when you say business registration, I want to clarify because there was discussion of registration and fee 
last year, in 2017, you're just talking about registration, not necessarily a fee. Right. It's not a business license, which I think um, people think of initially. It's more so that if you said, how many manufacturing um, businesses do we have? How many um, accounting firms do we have? How many law firms do we have? How many... um, physician offices are there? How many nail salons are there? How many, how many, how many? Right now, we can't answer that question. And the, I think I, I wrote in my narrative that immediately people think of the Chamber of Commerce, which is great, but I think we just heard from Mr. Griffin that they have a 1,000 members. We have many more businesses in the city. And so in order to be a member of the uh, Chamber of Commerce, you have to be I mean, you have to become a member to be part of the chamber, and a business registry would be open to everyone. And if there was any a fee associated with it, it would just to cover the cost to collect the data. I, it's it's not a revenue generator. It's mostly to assess what we have. And I gave an example recently to someone um, to say. If a business is hiring and they haven't been able to find enough workers locally, do they know why that is? What are the skill sets that are missing? And when you talk to people who are working on these um, concerns, they can't quantify it either. The EDC can't quantify it. In general, they have an idea, but wouldn't it be better to know, you know, specifically so that you could you know, encourage someone to start a program to address the issues or put people in touch with one another. Um, it's just a, it's a very important first step. Mm-hmm. The other the other element of, of that question that we were asking about beyond uh, needing to develop businesses in, in some of these areas of need is how you address the problem of, of either vacant housing or vacant lots in, in those areas. And that goes to some of the, the blight eradication efforts that that you've dealt with. Uh, Do we really have a comprehensive strategy right now for for dealing with those things? It it, it feels as though the city is kind of doing a lot of little things in many areas rather than than tackling one area at a time. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that's been the case. Um, Obviously, we can tell that's been the case because the outcome, we're living in the outcome. Um, You know, if this had been addressed in a more comprehensive way, perhaps things wouldn't be um, you know, as they are today. With that being said, I I do know that city staff is making a very concerted effort, a targeted approach to addressing these issues so that when we do spend money and when we do spend staff time, they are focusing in. And, and, and now we're using multi-department approach so that we're out of our silos, which is another major um, improvement. And again, I'm very optimistic. I, I, every time I'm in a meeting with a staff member, I come out and I'm just so grateful that they are taking these issues seriously. And it's, it's you know, and, and one one of the um, sometimes I'm criticized for being too impatient, and that is something that um, it was hard for me to get accustomed to. The slow motion of moving through the bureaucratic process, which if someone's running a business and they have total control, they can just dictate what happens. And, you, and that's not wise in government. You need a lot of different perspectives to come in, and um, and hopefully at the end you get a better product. Mm-hmm. One other issue on the vacant lots, Sally and I were talking a little beforehand. You you noticed the the park issue, right? Which sounded fabulous to put more more parks into the into the city and areas, but. 
then again, you know, how, how do you go about that and how do you prevent those from becoming places where drug deals take place and uh, there's vandalism and, and those type of things. I, I think um, part of that obviously goes to policing, which we'll talk about again, but any, any thoughts on, on how that would work to creating those parks? Well, I think that one, one thing that um, I think something that I've learned is that smaller parks perform better when there's lots of outside observation. So, for instance, and you'll see this, you'll see kids playing in areas of town where you think, why are they playing there? They want that surveillance. They are playing in places where people, you know, on the street or in someone's small front yard, they want the they, they want to be seen by their neighborhood, so they want the independence of being in the park, but they also want the surveillance. So I, and I've recently um, had a, a conversation with our parks director, and she's very enthusiastic about this idea. They, in fact, they've already mapped out the 10-minute walk of all the public park space that we have in our city, and it's pretty impressive. So I think that um, the strategy would be for the city to get together with the park, and as you know, we're both separate forms of government. There's not that much... Um, um, casual interaction because the offices are not this, you know, in the same building. Um, I know that everyone has a good relationship with one another, and I think the trust for um, public parkland. I think this idea of getting mayors to sign on <clears throat> to this notion that if we can establish these green spaces, and they don't have to be large. That's another thing. We're not talking about massive acreage. We're talking small parks. Like empty lot somewhere. Right, mm-hmm. right. And it, I know you mentioned even with the park district, but they seem to be pulling back now. They're, I think they're having their own struggles, and well, I wonder how much help they'll be. Well, exactly, and yeah. I think that somehow we have to make a decision um, Will all parkland be under the control of the, not, not the parkland that currently exists, but any new public parks that are established within neighborhoods? Are those the responsibility of the city? Could those be the responsibility of a neighborhood association? Would they be the responsibility of the park district? You know, those are details that could be worked out, but you have to get a plan together. It can't be spotty. It has, it has to be, you know, coordinated. And this outside vision, and after my conversation with the director of our park district, I, again, I was very optimistic. One of the well, the city has has really undertaken two major areas of, of improvement in in urban or arguably blighted areas in in the last decade. Uh, one of them has been the warehouse district, and and we've seen a resounding success there. I would say, in, in terms of businesses and residential locating there in a walkable area. The other has been the Wisconsin Avenue corridor, where I, I think we've seen, I, I would call it mixed success, that, that hasn't quite popped yet. It may do a little more so with, with OSF locating uh, near the, the Midtown Plaza space. Certainly, they, they would hope so. What's been the problem with, with getting the second to take off and where do we go now that the first one seems to be succeeding? What, what's the next outgrowth of that? Well, if you want to talk about the small com- commercial corridors within the neighborhoods, those are, pro- you know, 
in, in from my per, you know perspective, the most important. You know, establishing what used to be there, bringing it back, the commercial centers for the neighborhood so that people's daily needs are met. And we, we know that we don't have the um, type of amenities and um, um, uh, businesses that are necessary in the older parts of town. And that, you know, that is a result of a shifting in attitudes about retail and how people shop and the introduction of the auto and all that. But for the Wisconsin corridor, um, what we, you know, there was a start to establish a plan. Mm -hmm. But that's way different than what happened in the warehouse district. For anybody that remembers, the warehouse district was a culmination of years worth of work and foundation um, established and a plan put together and outside consultants and, you know, questioning assumptions and, and, and tweaking things. If we could bring that kind of investment and resource to these small commercial centers, it wouldn't cost nearly as much, but it's going to take it's going to take a concentrated effort. And I am sorry to say, but I think one of the major problems that we face there is that big, open um, f- front yard of Glen Oak um, School. You know, if, you know, to be successful, you need buildings on either side of the street mirroring each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know... If I were to do it, if I was in charge, you know, I might want to see a street in front of Glen Oak and then allow some new buildings to be built in that front yard in, instead of the way it currently is. And and that's, I'm sure, a pipe dream now because that's actually kind of the way it used to be before it was all torn down. Um, and, 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 you know, boy, we fought against that, but it's all said and done. And it's not healthy to, to look back on, on missed opportunities. It's just better to try to work on solutions going forward. The, the city also very heavily incentivized the warehouse district and, and worked with, with a lot of developers there. Is that something that needs to be done in these smaller areas with, with much more targeted incentives and, and find developers and, and bring them in? Well, you know, I'm not opposed to incentives providing their, you know, well-formulated and you know, the predicted outcome is likely. You know, we have evidence of incentives where we were led to believe something would take place. And I think I write about this in the narrative mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, we've been asked to answer so many um, questions that maybe it was for the biz pack. But, you know, I think sometimes we're led to believe something's going to take place and then it doesn't. And then we try the same approach again, and it still doesn't happen. Um, I'm not in favor of these big projects as end-all, be-all solutions to neighborhood problems. Um, They've proven not to work well here. I like the idea of incentivizing smaller businesses. um, And there's, there's ways that the city can in exchange for an incentive, require certain things. So if you build something new in the neighborhood, you know, make the person or request the person that's building hire local people. Um, you know, but but there's there there are as soon as you think of a good idea, there's another hurdle put in your put in front of you, and and it just depends on how creative you can be with some of these solutions. Mm-hmm. Had talked about in the answer to one of the questions, you know, where you were asked, "What could we do with 
getting the city in better financial shape and, you know, no cuts to city services. You had talked about um, densifying the city. But now is that different than what you're proposing with, say, Wisconsin and some of those areas? Is this, I, I, I guess I took that as sort of a business here, a business there, a business there, just as much as you can to make it all more valuable. Would that be a different approach? So, than- so for instance, if you, the way that we do um, business, the way businesses are cited now, they're cited and typically in a strip mall or a big surface parking lot or something like that. And if you just calculate the tax dollar per square per acre, Mm -hmm. you learn that if you can get businesses closer together, maybe share a parking lot, that's what you would call densifying an area. And you could look at this downtown. I know that there are lots of surface parking lots downtown. Could we you know, convince someone to sell part of their parking lot to build a business or when a business wants to come to town and then perhaps open up some street parking to take, you know, to offset the pe- parking that's lost? I mean, mm-hmm. these are... You know, these are not new ideas. These are not my original ideas. It's just a mathematical equation. The denser your city, the more tax property tax dollars you derive. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 just a mathematical equation, and it's happening. You know, the reverse is happening in places like Detroit, where they've seen so much disinvestment and so much de- demolition, and they're looking for infill projects and. Um, and I think that in the older parts of town, that's what we have to do. We can't develop the way we've been developing. Well, you kind of compared that to Peoria Heights, which is sort of a, a different, unique situation in yeah. that they're almost like a, a little main street over there. Yeah. And I was just trying to think of what areas in the city do you think could be a little... Well, just take and, uh, just look at any commercial corridor, mm-hmm. um, maybe one that's familiar to all people, um, Glenn and Sheridan or Glenn and University. And if you remember what those intersections looked like 30 years ago, there's been a lot of change over time, a lot of change. But we were still allowing development patterns in a suburban context. You know, a building surrounded by a big parking lot. What if we had changed the zoning to allow smaller businesses lined up right next to one another and change the character and make it more of a destination. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it people like a small are metro re- center kind of. Well, n- even metro center still is you know a, a larger strip mall in a park in a in a big parking lot. But even they made an attempt to start building on their outlets, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's it's just one way of starting to densify and. Because we don't see it there now doesn't mean it can't exist in the future, but we do have to make some changes to our zoning laws because right now the zoning that we have produces what we see. Obviously, you're familiar with, as are other members of the council, the 24-7 WallStreet.com report that's named us progressively second worst, first worst, fifth worst Mm -hmm. city for African Americans. And I don't know if you've had the chance to read the Governing Magazine package that came out last night that that uses real math and real rankings Mm -hmm. to essentially bolster the same Mm -hmm. conclusions. The city spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on on the National Resource Network study that, that told us by GAD, something's got to be done about these issues. We held a series of, of community meetings, conversations on racial issues, the end result of which was a general agreement. 
by Gad, somebody's got to do something about this. We really have not seen much concrete follow-through on projects Mm -hmm. to be undertaken with City Hall backing them on that. What can you commit to right now? If you're reelected, what are you going to push for City Hall to do on addressing those comprehensive problems? Well, I think I even wrote it in my narrative, and is the narrative going to be uh, we'll, we'll be posting all of these online okay, for all so, the candidates who chose to submit them, which as of now is 14. Okay, well, so the way I like to look at this is everyone has a role to play in improving the situation, and yes, the governing magazine, in fact, I, I think I... I hadn't read the governing magazine, but I think I addressed it in my narrative. Um, The segregation problem that we have is serious, but it's not... it's, It's the result of building patterns that were considered um, cutting edge back in the 50s, I guess, to accommodate the car and to move people into subdivisions where there was some sort of expectation of what you would, you know, what types of buildings would be built. And when you take it to the level that we see in Peoria, where we have the older parts of town and then we had people that wanted to live in new, new, new homes, um, that's a choice. And we have those subdivisions now, north of town. They are not going away. So my um, focus, and my focus has been like this ever since I became a Heart of Peoria Commission member and up until this day, the only way to switch this coin is to make it so that every neighborhood is attractive and people want to live there. You have to create the neighborhoods to attract the diversity, and you want a diversity in income. You want a diversity in backgrounds. You want a diversity of people so that once everyone gets together, and I think that's the thrust of the governing article. I think they're saying, hey, look at what you have and look at the consequences, and they're drawing conclusions. And I don't know if it's a, you know, you'd have to be a, a, a more experienced scientist than, and I'm not a scientist, but you'd have to be a more experienced person than I am to, to, to you know, be able to say, is this causation? Is there a correlation? The, the point of the matter is we have sections of town where people are living in conditions that have to be addressed. They have to be addressed. And I am confident that the council and the staff now understand that. And the Governing Magazine article is just one more document to explain it in more precise terms. It was not a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. It was not a surprise to me. And actually, you know, uh, this this right here is from 2000, what does that say, 2005? 2006. January, yeah. 2006. Mm-hmm. It doesn't talk about Peoria specifically, mm-hmm. but it addresses the same issue. You know, this is 13 years mm-hmm. ago. But do, does the city understand these things, though? And I ask because, again, all of the incentives and effort and money that we've put into the warehouse district we didn't make a requirement for the developers there, did we, to offer affordable housing that, that can attract people of all income levels there. We're, we're having market rate housing that, that prices out, yeah. that, that, 
the type of, of lower income people who we might want to have able to live in, right. in these newer, more refurbished areas right. of town. Right. So, so for cities that have development pressure, where there are lots of developers vying for one piece of land, the city can do more to do um, inclusionary zoning so that, um, you know, in exchange for including lower income or moderate income housing, you know, however you want to, whatever term you want to use, then the developer gets a break on the fees, they get a speedier, you know, um, permitting process. There's all sorts of incentives that are very valuable to developers. Puri doesn't have the same sense of development pressure. We, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, all those ideas are great, but what we have to remember is when somebody owns a piece of land north of town and they get an idea that they want to build X, it's, there's very little we can do to prevent X from being built unless we've already thought about it ahead and described what we're expecting, create the type of zoning code that we need. And you know I've been an advocate of form-based codes. I think it's really the best way to go. Um, I don't... I. I you know, I, I'm not sure how this would all work out. And I would be in favor of it all. I think that you have to have that mixed mixed income, mixed use, um, and, you know, create the kind of neighborhoods where people can access their daily needs on foot. Mm-hmm. It's, a much, it's a much more interesting way to live. It's a much healthier way to live. Yeah. I, I want to ask you, too, as a, a jumping-off point for that, uh, and we've been asking all candidates this, how do you make somebody, and it's easy to say north of War Drive, but but how do you make somebody who lives in a neighborhood that is perhaps not as visibly affected by these disparities want to agree to spend city time and city resources affecting, addressing those particular issues? Because I, I think that's been a huge difficulty in the buy-in is Everybody, many people who live in those unaffected neighborhoods are not clamoring for there to be a fix the same way the people in those affected areas are asking for a fix. How, how would you go about getting those people who think they're not affected to care about it? Well, I think that, you know, I w- I'm going to be more optimistic, and I think that people do care. It's just that what you said earlier, the something done by somebody, the something's not described, the somebody's not identified, it's everyone's issue. Um, the, the downtown, the core neighborhoods set the character for the entire city. And um, that we all have a role to play. We all have um, opportunities to discuss these issues and, and make people see the value. But I'll tell you right now, everybody has a job in the north part of town, most likely. And those jobs are, are um, affected by whether their businesses can grow or stay here. And it is going to be up to all of us to make sure that the city is strong. We are not going to be able to attract the kind of talent we want if more articles like Governing Magazine come out. The next article should be, Peoria took this on, and this is what they're doing, and this is what they're doing by department, by neighborhood. And I'm, you know, there's, there's, we have hundreds of groups trying to address the issues of poverty. You know, if I could solve poverty, 
you know, if we could solve poverty, you know, just think of what kind of recognition you'd get for that. Incrementally, though, we can we can put focus in on what, in a large part, has exacerbated it. And uh, you know, the eradication of blight, we absolutely have to take care of it. We've got to make sure that no matter what income level you're at, what your background is, you have to be able to live in a decent place. And you need to be able to walk on streets that are safe. They need to be well lit. They need to be tree lined. I don't care what part of town you're in. These are conditions that signal we care about you. We care about the place. You know, this idea of pride of place needs to be contagious. And it's not, and, and, and sometimes it's because people can get in their car, in their garage, drive to their garage that's assigned to their work, go to work, get back in their car, in the garage, drive back home, go back to their garage, and never, ever set foot on the sidewalk. You don't notice these things if you're in your car because you go by them too quickly. Mm -hmm. um, aside from not solving the poverty problem, if, if you were to... <laughs> Which I'd love to do. <laughs> if you were to look back at, at your last two terms, what uh, would you consider maybe your, your best accomplishment or what you're the most proud of? Well, time. there's several. So if you really want me just to do one. Um, if you can. Uh, I think that the adoption of the complete streets and really the commitment for implementation, because the reason it's important, and I know, you know, I'm sure my friends listening to this are going to go, oh, my God, Beth, people's eyes are rolling over. Um, <laughs> but if you think about like a stage set, the streets set the stage for what's going to come next. So if you blow a freeway through something, you are not going to get the economic development. You're not going to get the housing types. You're not going to get the attention that people need as human beings because they're not really supposed to be walking on or, you know, they're not supposed to be living right on the edges of freeways, right? But in many ways, we've blown freeways through our neighborhoods. Those five-lane roads that you see, you know, each one, each lane is 12 feet. That is the same um, uh, requirement that the federal highway uses for I-74, I-55, 12, you know, 12 foot travel lanes. And then you bundle them together and eventually you get 60 feet of road blowing through a neighborhood. So the complete streets, um, the, the recognition that we needed to do something about the way we were you know, building our streets and the way we retrofit streets. And I think that recently someone stood up and said, why can't we have a road like Northmore down on the south side? And I was, you know, I felt bad that they felt bad that Northmore got this adjustment, but I felt good about the fact that they recognized it was a good street. And that was, and that took some effort. You know, there was a lot of retrofitting of the decisions that were made. Jim Montalongo and I worked really hard together and we had to get an outside attorney in and we met for hours to try to get some adjustment to how that was all going to unfold. Um, but it was really worth it in the end. So probably, and, and, and just as a footnote, our recent legislative breakfast, the overarching theme was walkability. And um, when I first started in office, the overarching theme was, let's expand Pioneer Parkway. <laughs> Which is and to be clear, Pioneer Parkway is still on their list, but oh, actually, it's dropped off. It has. Yes, I, yeah, think I, it I has. thought they were still asking for for the extension as part of the capital plan. Well, I, I, I'm, they, I'm. They were talking I, much actually, more about walkability. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure that that's still um, top of the mind. 
And that would be, after this governing article, Mm -hmm. I would say that it should be, you know, dead on arrival. And on the flip side of that, looking back, what would be your biggest regret? Oh, my gosh, my biggest regret. Um, My biggest regret as a council member, Mm -hmm. a missed opportunity. Um, hmm. Oh, my gosh. Uh, hmm. You know, I don't really like to focus in on. Um, I don't really like to focus too much on negative things. But um, my biggest regret. Oh well. Okay. I think the video gaming. I wish I had worked harder to prevent that from happening. Um, there are a couple of other big projects that ended up costing more money than I thought they should have, and I didn't work hard enough. I, oh, okay. I, I think I can. I think I can answer this. I think that as I become a more seasoned council member, there is value in really working hard with your colleagues to try to get like some understanding about how each other um, feels about an issue. And, um, and I, am, I have made quite a bit of effort to work super well with the district council people, and it's, it's really paying off. So I guess my biggest regret is when I first got on the council, my um, election was such a surprise because people had worked so hard to make sure I wasn't going to get on the council because they thought they didn't know what to think. Gary Sandberg used to say, Beth, you're kind of a conundrum. They don't know what to think about you. And, um, you know, gosh, I miss Gary so much. But, uh you know, our styles were different, but some of our attitudes were very similar. And um, he was a good friend of mine. And um, so I think my biggest regret was not working harder at the very beginning. Um, and even the mayor and I just talked about that. I think that he's um, really appreciative of some of the things I've been doing. I'm sure, so. there's a learning curve. Pardon me? Sure, there's a learning curve. Oh, it's like, like a anything. fire hose. Yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah. I, I, I do want to ask you, as we, we close up here, uh, a couple of times over the last few years, there's been some controversy sparked by either tweets or oh, retweets yes, in, in the African-American community. Tell us what you learned from that experience and, and what you think your relationship has been with that community in the last couple of years. Well, it's too bad that that was a mischaracterization. Um, and I was so blindsided by it that I didn't know really. I was so stunned because for people that know me and for anybody that had been paying attention to my voting record and my attitudes and where my thrust has been, it just seemed to be so, it was such a surprise to me. So. Um, it's unfortunate. I don't know that the, the 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 couple of people that have made this their mission, you know, they they've started this campaign to make sure I don't get reelected. And you've got a I, Facebook page I'm, against you well, now. <laughs> you know, and I don't go on Facebook, so it doesn't really make my. You know, I don't go to. I don't wake up looking at it, and I don't go to sleep looking at it. Um, and that's unfortunate. It's. Um, I, you know, I can't read people's minds, and I would hope people shouldn't, you know, think that they can read my mind or my facial expressions. Um, you know, maybe more, more you know, more. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm very sorry that anybody ever interpreted that to mean that I was anti-black American. That's not the case 
absolutely not the case. And it's very unfortunate that it's characterized this way. But we're living in this type of political climate. Everyone's got a idea of what something means without really diving in deeper and not and and it's not it's not how I operate. I don't take things at surface value um, as evidenced by how I spend my time learning about what I have to be deciding about. So it's unfortunate. I'm sorry it happened. Um, I still love Twitter. I still love Twitter. Mm-hmm. The other one I, I want to ask about, uh, at, at the Sterling Oaks Neighborhood Association, there was a question asked about food deserts mm. there, and uh, I think some later social media exchanges. Oh, yeah, that, I had to get out of that you one. Were, you were part of, uh, make it clear, you believe your comments there were taken out of context. So tell me and, and tell everybody listening here what you believe the root causes are and, and problems that lead to food deserts. Okay, so this and is not— just as important, okay. what the city should be doing— that it isn't doing now to address this problem. Okay, so these are not, I, I don't know if I should be looking at the camera when I'm saying this or not, but because um, I feel like I'm having a conversation with you, which is being recorded. So those are not my ideas. The ideas that I brought forward was the, the result of, you know, major research done by the nation's most, you know, reliable, highly thought of, um, institutions, you know, the University of Chicago, Stanford, NYU, and if we if we resist learning about the root causes of problems, then we're not going to be able to address them. Now, I think the long, I think that what the article basically said was, if you think solving the food desert means getting another grocery store that probably isn't going to solve the problem. And we've learned that. We've had 11 stores close. So if stores can't justify you know, setting up shop in a neighborhood based on you know, the catchment area of their customers, mm-hmm. then what are, the, what are the different choices we have? Do we subsidize the stores as a government? Is that, is that one of the solutions? I don't know. Um, people need food where they're living. They need affordable, filling food that's easily easy to ac- you know access. And actually, I had lunch today with a couple of people, and we were talking about it. And you know, maybe there needs to be more effort to have some you know serious conversations with some of the providers currently. So, um, could Family General or Family Dollar or the Dollar Store, any of the stores that seem to um, set up shop in neighborhoods um, where the, where there are food deserts could could they could they adjust their business model? It, it seems to me that that might be unlikely um, because retail is a function of what you're buying, you know how much is being purchased, and that's what drives the business. You know this is a free market in that sense. And I, you know, if I could solve the food desert problem again, I mean this would. I think long term we might be able to address it, but for the short term, you know, I am interested in helping with any options people have. But it's got to be affordable, filling, convenient, right? Because mm-hmm. the time currency associated with getting on a bus, and our bus system is not as robust as I'd like to see it. You know, you you have to wait several hours, and if you miss the bus, it's another hour, and. Good grief, you know, people are tired and they're working, you know, one or two jobs and they've got to pick up kids and it's, 
And I, you know, I don't know what the solution is. I, I, I want to jump in here and, and ask, too, because you used affordable, filling, and convenient as, as your criteria there. And one of the things that, that we've seen is, in particular, the, the convenience stores like, like Family Dollar are not offering affordable, nutritious Well, and I forgot content. nutritious, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to No, no, no. It's got to sure be. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, again, has something to do with this education piece mm-hmm. because it, it is possible that people think, you know, we're going to take what we can get if it's cheap and filling and not understand the consequences of nutritious. But, you know, look at me. I don't eat the most nutritious things all the time either. You know, I understand the... Um I understand, I understand this, this um, I understand the gravity of the situation. Do I have an immediate, you know, and, and even when Clyde Gully was the uh, first district council member, there was talk about the food deserts back then. And, and I went up to the co-op in Hyde Park to learn more about how that co-op works. And co-ops are tricky. You know, because they don't have all the same bells and whistles that regular grocery stores have. And it is, it is, it's it's very disconcerting that that stores are likely and and typically um, located in in neighborhoods where there's more affluence. Mm-hmm. It's 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 economics. And right. it's it's except we can't keep one in Germantown Hills. <laughs> <laughs> you look, okay. Yeah. You, need, you need a larger they, population. They close. Place. They keep closed. Mm-hmm. We had two well, see, that have yeah. closed. And okay, so then yeah. so then it's a factor of more than just demographics yeah. from a um, income level. It mm-hmm. probably has to numbers. more to do with numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, and we've kind of kind of run even, yeah, even a little bit we going to go our, our time. Yeah. Um, I, I think we may end up uh, chatting a little more afterward too. I, we've been closing by asking folks this: uh, voters do have a choice to make on the twenty sixth, and if you make it through the twenty sixth, also on April second, why you instead of the other fourteen candidates who are running? Because I am a consistent voice for all neighborhoods. All people, all citizens, I am seriously focused on making Peoria the place people want to live, and um, I've got more work to do. All right. Incumbent at-large city councilwoman Beth Akison, thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.